Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for celebrations like that, big achievements and milestones that take so much effort. Father, thank you that there are times in our life where encouragement comes when perhaps we have not had it in a while. God, thank you that there are times in our lives where we turn a corner or turn a page when it seemed like we would never get there. And Father, may it be that in every achievement and every pat on the back and every corner turned that you are right there with us, that we are right there with you. And Father, may that relationship come through us looking to the Lord Jesus Christ and may us looking to the Lord Jesus Christ be from your word. And so God, here we are right now. We thank you for Sunday mornings. We ask your blessing on the preached word now. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you would please turn in the Bible to the book of Hosea, the book of Hosea. And I'm going to give you all a few minutes because it's going to take some time to find that. We most recently finished up the Gospel of Mark, and we've been in and out of a couple things for a few weeks now, but we're going to get back to a series And this series is going to begin with the book of Hosea. I've never done this, so y'all bear with me. And I don't know when the last time somebody preached on the Minor Prophets was here. And so here we go. It's going to be good for our church. We're going to do a study now, hopefully now until Christmas, if you will, on the Minor Prophets. You're going to find those at the end of the Old Testament. We're going to go in order. I don't know exactly how much time we'll spend in each book because some are really long and some are really short. But... We're going to be in the Minor Prophets, and today is Hosea. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can use the Black Pew Bible there. It's page 827. 827 if you're using the Pew Bible there. The Minor Prophets. You know, we're committed here at our church at the Bible, to the Bible and studying the Bible and looking to the Scriptures. We believe they're from God. From God. You remember a few weeks ago as I finished the book of Mark and we got to that ending, I preached a sermon on the Scriptures are from God. And I reminded you all that, that we believe that literally these words here are from the mouth of God. They are inspired by Him. They are breathed by Him. And so we give incredible attention to them. The Bible describes the Bible as being alive and active. It can and will go to work on you. We have this great verse in Isaiah 55 that everywhere the word of God goes, it accomplishes the purpose for which God sent it out. We have every reason to believe that the Bible is authoritative, like it's really meaningful, but it's also efficient or effective. It does what God tells it to do. And so we as a church... As followers of Christ and me as your pastor, we have no other game plan than to continually and regularly and often get the word of God before you. This is what we do. And the Bible at that tells us to look at all of it, not just my favorite verses, but all of it. And so we want to give attention to the minor prophets. I've been praying and working and studying that I wouldn't do an injustice to it, that I wouldn't do a disservice to it, that I wouldn't be any more boring or more dull or anything like that than usual, and that it wouldn't cause you to think, I just don't get it, but rather that these minor prophets would be really, really good for you. I want you to be thinking, 
Never really read those before. I've never really heard a sermon on those before, but I like it, and I'm learning from it, and I'm learning about God from it. I'm learning about me from it. God's teaching me through it. God is growing me through it. God is growing our church through it. I want this to be what happens. Now, you may know there are 12 minor prophets here at the end of the Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Those 12 are the minor prophets. Minor because they're not very big. That's the only reason. They're not minor because they are less important or, or, or less detailed or less of a message or something like that. They're simply minor. We simply call them minor because they're shorter. The major prophets are like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. These are huge books. There's so much there when you start studying the major prophets. Again, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those guys. But the minor prophets are called this just because they are smaller. Many of those that you just heard me name uh, are only one or two chapters. They're really little. Hosea today, which is the first of the minor prophets, is one of the longest ones. 14 chapters in this book of Hosea. But that's why it's called minor. Don't think it's less important by any means. Do you know what a prophet is? Are we even aware of what a prophet is? Let me explain this to you. In the Old Testament, in the Bible, we have three offices of which God uses with his people. That is prophet, priest, and king. You've heard of that before, I hope. Prophet, priest, and king. A king, as you know, you're probably most familiar with, is the one, the the sovereign who reigns over his kingdom. You know that, right? King is the king, the one that reigns with authority and rule over his kingdom. And we know that God is to be the king. If you know the Old Testament, they eventually said, God, we don't want you to be our king anymore. We want a real king, a guy that has a sword and we can actually talk to and see how he leads us. And that's what they wanted. And then the kingdom uh, got worse after that. But we see a king in the Bible. We just saying, you know it, ultimately, Jesus is the perfect king. There are some good kings in the Bible. There are some bad kings in the Bible. Ultimately, we're longing for the kingdom of heaven. If you remember in Jesus' prayer that he taught us, it is, thy kingdom come. You remember that prayer. God is a king. He is the king of kings, and he has a kingdom. Well, that's one of the offices that you find in the Bible and in the Old Testament is king. Another one is priest. You may be familiar with this. You know that the Catholic Church still uses the term priest. And here's what a priest does. A priest talks to God on your behalf. A priest talks to God on your behalf. Simple definition there. If you've sinned, you go to the priest and you say, I need to repent. I need to confess. Would you please talk to the Lord for me that I would be forgiven? That's what a priest is. The Bible teaches us, folks, that Jesus Christ, alive and risen is our once and for all, forever priest. He is our high priest. You do not need to go through any other man. I am not a priest by any means. I am a minister or a pastor, shepherd, to help you look to the priest. Jesus is your forever high priest. You right there where you are, last night at your home, in your bed, by your prayer bench, wherever you are, 
You can bow your knee, bow your heart, and pray straight to Jesus Christ who will hear your prayer by faith and will answer it. The Bible teaches that Christ is on the right hand of God the Father, interceding on us on our behalf nonstop, continually. You do not need a priest. So we see this office of priest in the Old Testament showing us that people could not go and talk to God. Well, the ultimate fulfillment of the office of priest is Jesus. Jesus died, 1 Peter says, that he might bring us to God. We have direct access to God through Jesus. The Bible even goes so far to say, may we now with confidence go boldly to the throne of God. That's what the Bible teaches. Can you imagine? Before people understood Christ, before we had the Lord and Savior Jesus, people would never even think of going to God. They would have gone through a priest who they thought had the position, or who did have the position they could talk to God. But now we have Christ. Christ is the king of kings. Christ is the forever priest. But there's another office called a prophet. So the king is the one who reigns over the kingdom. The priest is the one who talks to God on behalf of the people. Well, the prophet is the one who goes the opposite direction. Instead of the people going to the priest to go to God, the prophet gets the message from God, God gives it to the prophet, and the prophet says, hey, listen, guys, thus saith the Lord. Here's what God says. Hey, listen up. God's got a message for you. That's what a prophet does. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the ultimate, real, and true prophet. He is the word of God become flesh. Jesus is. But in the Old Testament, before we get to the ultimate prophet in Jesus, we have prophets. Moses was the first of the awesome prophets. But even Moses, who we consider to be awesome and great and fantastic, wonderful leader and all of that, even Moses spoke up and said, there's becoming one after me that is far greater than me, a prophet greater than me. And he was pointing us to this bigger and better, more true prophet. Well, we never found him until we had Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the office of king in the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of the office of priest in the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of the office of prophet in the Old Testament. If you've never heard that before, then I hope a light bulb just turned on. I hope your eyes were just opened. I hope lots of the Bible is starting to make sense to you in that regard. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go to our Old Testament, to these minor prophets, these 12 prophets, these 12 small books at the end of your Old Testament, basically right in the center of your Bible, and we're going to look at these prophets. We're going to see what they're saying. We're going to be people that still believe the gospel, right? Christ is still our Lord. He's our Savior. He died for our sins. That's our hope and our treasure. But we're going to seek to understand how God was speaking and teaching us from these Old Testament minor prophets. And today we start with Hosea. 14 chapters. It's a long one. Read with me, if you will, all of chapter 1. Now, before we get going, I want to point out, they're not all this way, but Hosea is pretty graphic. They're not all this way, but Hosea is, all right? My translation here today is an ESV. It uses the same word as the King James Version. The NIV, or the Pew Bible that you're using, using, uses 
promiscuity or a promiscuous woman. My translation today uses a bad word, a whore. Now, it's bad if you call somebody that. I think you know that. And God's going to use it to call his people that. Some of your kids don't need to know what that word means yet. Some of them may, and that's not the pastor's job. That's the parent's job, all right? <laughs> but notice that it's here. Chapter 1 of Hosea. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beery, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel and in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. This is an interesting book. We don't know much at all about Hosea. We know that in verse 1 it tells us that he was a prophet in a, for a long time because he was a prophet while all of these different kings reigned. If you don't know much, the nation of Israel was divided up into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom, which went by the name Israel, and the southern kingdom, which went by the name Judah. And it was in the southern kingdom, Judah, where Jerusalem is. And so that's why there's this distinction here of all these kings. For Israel, the northern kingdom, there was Jeroboam, and he was the prophet during his reign. But for the uh, southern kingdom, Judah, he was the prophet during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, these kings. That lets us know that Hosea's ministry or his prophetic ministry covered a long time. The nation of Israel was up and down. The nation of Israel had seen a lot of prosperity, a lot of financial success. Things were going well. But what was starting to happen is they were getting further and further and further away from God. They had fallen into idolatry. They were worshiping something other than God. And God holds back very little here. When he calls it what it is, that is 
unfaithfulness. The book of Hosea is about God admitting to his people that they have broken the covenant. They have broken their covenant with God. And God is going to point out to them how serious that is, how bad that is, and how unfaithful they are. Now, as to not get too far ahead of ourselves here, I want to remind you of this covenant. The old covenant says, listen to me, I'm going to teach you something real quick. The old covenant says, if you obey God, he will bless you. And if you disobey God, he will curse you. Does everybody hear me? That's the old covenant. If you obey God, he will bless you. If you disobey God, he will curse you. That's what we see in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant often. But because they were so unfaithful, what we find in the Old Testament, you know the story, or at least the theme, over and over again, these people of God, that God was never leaving or forsaking, that God was always being faithful toward, were continually, often regularly, falling away from God. If you've read anywhere in the Old Testament, you continue to find, wow, they've fallen away. What are they thinking? What are they doing? God would save them out of slavery in Egypt, and they say, God, we'll, we love you so much for that. We'll never turn our backs on you again. And as soon as they end up somewhere else, they turn their backs on him. They're starving for food, and they say, God, if you will give us food, we'll never turn our backs on you again. God makes manna fall from heaven and feeds them, and they finally say, we don't like manna. You're not a good God. And he says, okay, I'll give you quail. And they say, wow, we love quail. And then they have so much quail, they say, we're sick of quail. You're not a good God, and they fall away from him. And this goes on and on and on, up and down all the time. They were unfaithful to God. And so then punishment would come. And another nation would come and overpower them and would take them over. And since that nation took them over, they would say, we're not even going to believe in our God anymore. And they would start to, for lack of a better term, to use God's word, they would start to whore themselves with the false gods. Forsaking their first love, they would say, no, we love this God now. There are lots and lots of passages in the Bible where this false god, this made-up god named Baal, B-A-A-L, they're trying to worship. It is unfaithful. That's not their god. That's not God. That's wrong, so that's not faithful. So God with Hosea wants to demonstrate his love. So we start to see glimpses of what we can call the new covenant. The old covenant is, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. Now, there are themes and there are threads in which that is good and right and true, but that is not God's saving method. If your mindset, listen to me, on church or religion or coming to this church or even your Christian life or to the extent that you think you are a believer in God is based off of that old covenant, that's not good. That's not right. For God has given us a new covenant. The new covenant picks up in the Old Testament. It picks up in the prophets. We have glimpses of it throughout the Old Testament, but we see it fully finalized in the New Testament with the risen Jesus. The new covenant says... I will give you a new heart. I will cause you to obey me. 
I will cause you to love me, and I will cause you to hate sin. This is why Christians believe in what we call the new birth or born again. This is why we believe in regeneration, that people are made new. This is why we believe that people are dead in their sins and they've come alive to God. We believe those things. We do not believe, well, keep doing good and obeying God and you'll be right with God. And if you don't, you're not right with God. We believe that every single person has sinned against God and therefore is dead in their sins and therefore does not have a relationship with God. They may have some respect toward him. They may acknowledge him. They may in some ways think that they believe in him. They may in some ways cling to some of his truths. But they have not risen up out of their deadness. Their heart is still the sinful heart that they born with, that they've grown up with. They have not been brought into the new covenant. The new covenant is not which God says, if you do this, I'll do this. The new covenant is when God says, y'all are so unfaithful to me, all you know how to be is unfaithful to me. And so because of your sinfulness, like we sang in that first song, joke, great song for us to open up with, if the Lord would count sins, who could stand? None of us. But with him there is forgiveness, and so our cry is, Lord, have mercy on me. And so in our unfaithfulness, God then, under the new covenant, goes to people, changes their heart, gives them faith, and they then love God. God creates in us a love for him. That's the new covenant. And so in the book of Hosea, You have God going to work with a visual of what this is going to be like. He takes his man, his guy, the prophet Hosea, and he says, Hosea, these people are so unfaithful to me, we're going to do something to show them this. I want you to go marry a prostitute. And you can imagine Hosea is going to say, well, that's not going to go over too well. A prostitute is probably going to be unfaithful to me as a wife. To which God says, now you're getting somewhere. Now you're starting to understand. I want you to go marry her. When she's unfaithful to you, I want you to keep loving her. And I want you to keep loving her. And regardless of the wife she is to you, the unfaithful wife she is to you, I want you to be the faithful husband back to her. What God is doing is God is taking this example of Hosea in which he marries this unfaithful woman. I'm going to try to not use that W word too much. He uses that marriage as a picture of God and his relationship to his people. It will show us that this old covenant's not working. Even though God says, love me and I'll bless you, we find ourselves time and time again still not loving him. So you're going to see this in the book of Hosea. Now what's wild about the book of Hosea is it's 14 chapters. This is really the only book where we learn anything about Hosea. And it's only in the first three chapters that we're hearing about Hosea and his life and his ministry and his, and, and his marriage and those sort of things. Once you get past chapter 3, and chapter 3 is very, very short. It's only five verses. Once you get past chapter 3, chapter 4 to chapter 14 is all about the analogy of God and his people. So the reason why God is doing this is to get us to see what it's like to have a faithful God and to recognize 
the severity of unfaithfulness. John MacArthur says, the theme of Hosea is God's loyal love for his covenant people, Israel, in spite of their idolatry. Thus, listen to this, Hosea has been called the Saint John of the Old Testament because John's gospel, or the Apostle John, is known as the Apostle of Love. If you read the Gospel of John, John is always talking about love. It's a loving gospel, the Gospel of John, that fourth book in your New Testament. And so John MacArthur points out that Hosea is often seen as the St. John book of the Old Testament because it is so much about love. R.C. Sproul says, Hosea's book is not about Hosea, but it is about God and his relationship to his covenant people, Israel. God emphasizes his uniqueness and his sovereignty. Because of his unique holiness, adoration of him is the only proper response, and God tolerates no rival claim. God is going to highlight right now how unfaithful people are to him. And God is going to warn us that unfaithfulness to God is not good. But God is going to come back after that and he is going to so overwhelm us with you better be thankful that your salvation is not based off your faithfulness but it is based off of my faithfulness. If you didn't know the new covenant folks yet, I hope you fall in love with it now. Let me go ahead and cut to the chase. If you're a Christian, a real one, it's not because of how good you are but how good God is. If you're a Christian on your way to heaven, it's not so much because you loved God, but rather but because God loved you. And under the new covenant, our Christian lives are a response to the work that God is doing in us. Where the old covenant said, do this and you will be my people, God says, I've done this, now you are my people. And Hosea is pointing this out. He tells Hosea to marry a prostitute. Next thing you know, he's got children. And so he names them something that sends a huge message from the prophet. You saw that. He names the daughter No Mercy. What a harsh name. He names the daughter no mercy so as to point out, listen up people, there's a message in this marriage, y'all aren't getting any more mercy. And if you heard heard God say that, if God was to say to you, I'm done giving out mercy, your answer would be, why? Why? Why are you doing this, God? What have we done? And that's exactly where God wants them to be. He finally wants them to look up to him. He finally wants them to listen, to which he points out, you've been unfaithful to me. It gets worse. There's another child, and he names that one, not my people. What a name. Not my people. So where before, under the name No Mercy, one might ask, why? Why are you going to stop giving us mercy, God? And God says, you've been unfaithful to me. Now the name of the child is Not My People. To that is a wake-up call. God saying, you're not my people. We had a covenant, and you broke it. You didn't keep your end of the deal. 
I'll be faithful to you if you're faithful to me. That's the old covenant. But they couldn't do it. It's the over-repetitive, over-reoccurring, repetitive theme of the Old Testament. And so, here we are at Hosea chapter 1. And you get to the end of chapter 1, verse 10. And he says, yet... The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And so we see here, we're just at the beginning, this is just chapter 1, but we see here that God has not forgotten who he is. God has not forgotten that he made promises. And while God may point out, you have not kept your promise, you've not kept your part of the covenant, God has not forgotten that he is a covenant-keeping God. God has not forgotten that he is faithful regardless of whether we are faithful. And the chapter ends with God saying to us, there will still be a people. And so it may not be the people that are the old covenant people, but there will still be a people that are the new covenant people. God is going to have a people. He clearly says that it is people from Judah and it is people from Israel. It is people from both sides of the kingdom of Israel. It is people from those that God has made. And God is a faithful God. I want to give you three points here this morning. The first is, God often uses marriage to teach us. This may be hard to accept, but this is the way God does it. God often, I mean often, uses marriage to teach us. As soon as you start reading your Bible, you start hearing about creation. And you only have to get two and a half chapters in, and God says... I made man out of dirt. He wasn't happy alone, so he needed a mate. So I made a woman out of the man. And God says in Genesis chapter 3 that he made Adam and Eve married. She was made a wife. He was made a husband. When they were put together, they were married. That's the very beginning of the Bible. If you turn to the very end of the Bible, the end of Revelation, and God starts telling us what it's going to be like when Jesus returns and when God ends the world and when judgment comes and salvation happens and the fullness of his covenant and the keeping of his covenant and the salvation that we all long for, when it happens, God describes it as a marriage. That the groom is coming to get his bride. And he describes it as God will gather all of those people who believe in him together. And he says they will have a meal, a feast, a supper, he calls it. But it will be a marriage supper between the church, which is the bride, and the Lord, which is the groom. The beginning of the Bible, we learn from marriage. The end of the Bible, we learn from marriage. If you want to read Jesus in the Gospels, he talks about marriage a lot, husbands and wives. You want to read Paul in all of his 13 letters, he talks about marriage over and over again, husbands and wives. You want to read Peter in his few, he talks about marriage. You want to go to the middle of the Old Testament? You want to find a prophet? who's got a message from God to tell the people that they've been unfaithful, where the message sometimes from the prophet is, hey, you guys guys better repent. The Lord's coming. 
I've talked my kids so many times about John the Baptist, that forerunner of Jesus, the one who came right before him and not wearing clothes and camel skin and locusts and honey and that kind of weird guy with the hair grown out that we don't know much about, but came before Jesus, his message as that kind of last prophet, that fulfillment of Elijah, that John the Baptist comes and he's got a real short sermon. He says things like this. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I'm not worthy. Y'all need to look to Jesus. That's him over there. You better get ready. You better repent. The kingdom of God is coming. He's coming right after me. He is awesome, holy, fulfillment. He's the one. I shouldn't baptize him. He should baptize me. John the Baptist's message is all in. Nobody, nobody, nobody is confused on what John the Baptist, the final prophet before Jesus, nobody's confused on what John the Baptist preaches. He preaches this. It's all Jesus. You better get right. Turn to him. He's the Savior, but he's a good one, and he loves you, and he is worthy. That's John the Baptist's message. And the prophets have messages all over the place like that. But in essence, all of these that you're going to see, Hosea, Joel, Amos, all of those that I named, every one of them are saying, if you're unfaithful to God, you better get right because he's a faithful God. You need to turn to him. He's the one that loves you. He's the one who keeps his promises. You need to turn to him. That's the message of the prophets. But this first minor prophet here, Hosea, he's got that same message. But you know how God chooses to explain it to us? With a real marriage. A husband that marries a woman that is unfaithful. And the pain of that, and the ugliness of that, And then God says, that's what we're like. God is often using marriage to teach us. Now, that doesn't at all mean that everybody here is failing in their marriage. That doesn't at all mean that everybody here needs to get married. That doesn't mean anything like that. What it does mean is that God uses marriage to teach us. And so, whether you're married or whether you're not, whether you like marriage or whether you're not, whether you want to get married or don't, whether you've had a failed marriage or whether you're broken in your marriage, hurt in your marriage, whether you've been wronged in your marriage, it doesn't matter. Those things are not what I'm talking about today. What I am saying is that God often points to marriage to help us understand faithfulness. And if you're married, you know that is the substance of our love. You say you love me, do you love me? You say you love me, will you love me? You say you'll treat me right, will you treat me right? You say you're there for me, Will you be there for me? You say you help me. Will you help me? You say you care. Do you care? And I could go on and on. God often uses marriage to teach us. Our call to worship today, totally not planned. We just go to the next psalm every single week. Last week was Psalm 50. Today was Psalm 51. Next Sunday will be Psalm 52. The passage The number one passage, clearest passage, strongest passage in the Bible on what it looks like to repent, to turn to God when you've sinned, to turn to him in your brokenness, to cry out to him and say, God, help me, to say, God, forgive me, to say, God, I've done wrong, to say, God, I need you. The clearest passage in the whole Bible that is most familiar to us is Psalm 51. You know what that passage is? That is when David, King David, 
went and committed adultery with this lady Bathsheba. And instead of repenting of it, he went and had her husband killed so that he could marry her to have it covered up. Just a story mixed and mixed and mixed with unfaithfulness. God can teach you and I something when we start looking at marriage. What love really looks like. What sacrifice looks like. What service looks like. What faithfulness looks like. Because when we start getting at repenting, turning back to God rightly, sincerely, the question in hand is, are you being faithful to God? To which all of us have to say, I've not been as faithful to God as I should. And when you admit that, you then need to hear from me and hear from the scriptures. Has God still been faithful to you? Has God still been faithful to you? And may you hear me today and every time I'm here remind you, yes, he He is faithful to you guys. He loves you. He will not let you down. His promises are for you. They are there. They are real. Will you trust them? And so as you turn to God, as you are turning to God, as you admit to him, I need forgiveness, I need my sins forgiven, may you understand that it is his faithfulness that allows you in your sins to come back to him. He will receive you. This is what Hosea is going to show us. Number one, God uses marriage often to teach us. Number two, God sees unfaithfulness. We try so badly to not remember this point. We, we want so badly to forget this. But be reminded here today, he sees it. This whole book of Hosea is God saying, y'all been unfaithful. Here's the best way for me to show you how y'all have been. Hosea, need to go marry a prostitute. God sees it. When we look like that, he sees it. When we love other things, he sees it. Although nobody else is seeing what you're looking at on your phone, he sees it. Although nobody else is seeing how you talk to such and such, he sees it. God hears it, he sees it. The Bible goes so far to say, listen to this, that he's recorded in books every single bit of it. He sees unfaithfulness. This is why the idea of running from God is a bad idea. This is why the idea of trying to hide from God is a bad idea. There is no running from God. There is no hiding from God. Everything is laid open and exposed before him. The book of Hebrews says God knows. He knows right now if y'all are mad that he says this. He knows right now if you're not listening you're just ready to go. He knows those things inside of us that we are holding on to with such a sinful pride that we don't want to let go. He sees it all. He knows when we say bad words. He knows when we do bad things. He knows when we've been unfaithful. And that's the issue here. 
These people are the people of Israel. They are clearly, clearly, clearly the people that God has been faithful to. The people that God gave promises to. The people that God has been providing for and taking care of and leading. And They wanted a king, he gave them a king. They wanted a prophet, he gave them a prophet. They wanted food, he gave them food. They wanted shelter, he gave them shelter. He has been dealing with them for years and years and years and years. And now they want to be idolaters and love something else. They don't want to worship him anymore. They, want to, they don't want to be obedient to this God anymore. They want to be obedient to a false God now. And God sees every single bit of it. And that is the setting for this book of Hosea. That is the cause of God raising up this minor prophet Hosea that he might go and tell them, y'all have been unfaithful. God sees unfaithfulness. If you're here today and you know you've been unfaithful, that's a bad thing, but it's not that bad of a thing. For you can turn to God in your unfaithfulness. For the God who says, not my people and no mercy, is also the same God that comes right back and says, and the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you're not my people and I am not your God. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. God, who says, while we were yet sinners, sent Jesus to die on the cross. God, who is able to see our unfaithfulness, and then in his unfaithfulness, literally send his son Jesus to the cross. And so as Christ hangs there on the cross, faithful as ever, he never sinned. Christ hangs on the cross. God takes the unfaithful's sin and puts them onto the faithful Jesus. God kills his son Jesus on the cross for us so that his new covenant love and his new covenant promises can be kept forever, not based off of your faithfulness, but based off his son Jesus' faithfulness so that anybody anywhere who will say, oh God, I trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, they will be forgiven. Why? Because God is faithful. And so when God starts calling you unfaithful, don't get mad. Don't push back. Don't try to run from it. Don't distance itself from it. Say, I don't need this negativity in my life. I'm just going to surround myself with positive people, which is terrible advice. To some extent, we're all negative a little bit. To some extent, we're all unfaithful a little bit. You think you're positive to other people, but you're negative to yourself. We could go on and on and on with all this, right? What you need in your life, if you really want to have a foundation in life, is a faithful God that is a foundation. So many people are running around looking for people that are real faithful to be their foundation, and then they get so upset when it doesn't work. Half of my life is spent listening to people who are venting and frustrated because somebody let them down again. Join the club. We're all let down all the time by different people. Some people have it a lot worse. I get that. But nobody's ultimately faithful to hold you up. That's what God's pointing out. Your life isn't the way it is, and your struggle isn't the way it is because everybody else is unfaithful. Our lives are the way they are because we're unfaithful. None of us has loved God as we ought. And God sees that. God sees that. When you stand before God, and I don't know what day that will be. The Bible does say it could be any day. When you stand before God, you're not going to want to say, it's all their fault. You're not going to want to go there. 
For when you see him, for he truly is faithful as can be, you're going to realize I'm not as faithful as him. I'm not as faithful as I should be. Y'all, God sees that. He sees our unfaithfulness. And lastly, number three, God redeems the unfaithful. Somehow, Christianity, it happens every year, it happens every century, it happens in every home. Christianity morphs into bad doctrine, and we start thinking, he loves me because I'm doing such a good job. He loves me because I'm such a nice guy. He's, ble he's blessing my family and gave us these children because we're such good people. That's not true. God redeems the unfaithful. God blesses you because he's God. God loves you because he's loving. God loves you and has plans for your life because that's what God is like. Some people are really good people and hardship keeps coming. Some people are really bad people and blessing keeps coming. There's no formula to figuring out who God is faithful to and who he's not faithful to. God is faithful. God is faithful to the unfaithful. These are the themes in the scripture if you'll start reading it. And the book of Hosea is pointing out to us, I'm naming them not my people, and I'm going to go make them my people, not off that old covenant, off of this new covenant. I'm naming them no mercy. And you know who I'm going to pour out my mercy on? No mercy. Why, God? They don't deserve it. You're sure right. But they will love me. They will love me when I go and bring them back. Y'all, this is what Jesus did. God loves us, and he loves us so much that he sent Jesus. And the holy son of God who never sinned and shouldn't have died, died for us, the unfaithful. And any unfaithful person who would say, God, you're right and I'm wrong. God, you're true and I need you. That would say, God, I'm coming to you and I'm asking for forgiveness. God, would you save me? Would you set me on you? God, I believe you love me. The Bible says because of his new covenant promises and his new covenant love and because of his purposes in his son Jesus dying for us, the Bible says he will receive anyone who comes to him. The book of Hosea is going to highlight this love as well as anywhere in the Bible. God's going to break his people down with how unfaithful they are, and he's going to show them again that he still loves them based off of his faithfulness. If you're here today, understand the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. If you're here today, understand that it's not because you're so lovable that God loves you. Augustine, who lived... 15, 16, 1700 years ago, said, listen to this, God, it was in you loving me that I became lovable. That's what Jesus does for us. Jesus loves us. And because he loves us, he died for us while we were un. May God create in us a humble heart. May our song be what our first song was, have mercy on me. And may we turn to God trusting in his faithfulness.
And over the next few weeks, Hosea is going to make this stronger and stronger and stronger. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Hosea. And thank you, God, for this reminder of what your love is like to us, your strong love. God, we pray that you would work in our hearts a confession of our unfaithfulness and yet that we would cling to your faithfulness. Father, strengthen us. Give us honesty. Give us a vision to see your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray.